Our reading today is James chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of God. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Let's just bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you caused your Apostle James to write these words. And we pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you will cause them to live afresh in us, enable us to receive them at every level of our being, and to put them into practice. Amen. So James's desire is to see Christians living lives that are consistent. He wants us at the start of his letter, verse 4, to be mature and complete. And so he addresses those things which might knock us off course and get in the way of Jesus living his life in our circumstances. And so he started the book by considering how we deal with trials and difficulties. We need perseverance, verse 4. He tells us we mustn't be double-minded, verse 8 which is trying to lead a life that reflects at the same time both the values of the world and the values of the kingdom of God, because that simply won't work. It's like having one foot on a boat and one foot on the shore. You gradually split in half or else you fall in. God's kingdom is the reverse of the world's. And so the person who hasn't got much of the world's resources should take pride in his high position, verse 9. And the wealthy person recognize his low position. 
entirely upside down. People described as the Christians of these people who have turned the world upside down. And when we're having a hard time and we're tempted to react in an angry or self-pitying way, James says, you can't blame your behavior and attitudes on God, verse 13. It's all down to us, to our own evil desire, verse 14. And he explains the process by which sin develops in our lives. First, there is that little thought or emotion which tries to entice us, verse 14, insinuate itself into our lives. And then as we adopt that bad thought or emotion, we give it house room in our lives, we dwell on it, we make it our own, so the sinful desire is conceived in us, verse 15. And if we don't immediately check it and throw it out, it gives birth to sin in our actions. And of course the end of that process is eternal death. Whereas, and this is where our passage today comes in, Everything good in our lives and conduct comes from our Father in heaven, verse 17, the one who, unlike us, is not changeable. And his plan from all eternity has been to make us a new creation, a kind of first fruits of all he created. And he began that process by giving us birth through the word of truth, setting his character in our lives. Actually, this is the written word, but through his living word, setting his character in our lives. And from that point on, the only question is, how are we going to live that out in practice day by day? And we're all in this together. We're each other's dear brothers needing to help each other. So let's take note of this. It was God's word of truth that gave us spiritual birth, causing us to be born again. That's God's bit. He's done his bit. Our responsibility must be humbly to accept the word planted in us, the word which has the power to save us, verse 21, from our natural sinful state. And so we need to make that word of God both the compass and the mainspring of our lives to clear out all the clutter that gets in the way of Jesus filling us through and through. So God's done his bit. He comes in to us. Our responsibility is to receive that and get rid of all the junk Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, says James. Everything that's dirty or dishonorable or malicious. Everything that is less than the character of Jesus. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Bible tells us that the heart is desperately deceitful. It's so easy, isn't it, to persuade ourselves that our reactions to whatever it is are right, to justify our behavior. Well, he had no business speaking to me that way. Uh, um, She behaved disgracefully. It's a jolly good thing I gave them a piece of my mind. Well, they deserve what I did to them. I'm, I'm only getting my own back. Well, God's a God of justice, isn't he? I mean, so I'm entitled to behave as I did. Nobody else recognized that? It's just me. And that's why James writes, verse 20, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And the next time you feel cross, you need to remind yourselves of that. Because the trouble is, it catches us out so quickly and often, doesn't it? That's why James says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
and slow to become angry, verse 19. We need really to hear what the other person is actually saying and then think, why do they feel as they do? Why, why are they behaving like that? It seems so unreasonable to me. It seems so... What, what's going on in the background there in their lives? And far more importantly even than that, we need to hear what God has to say about the situation, to refuse to allow ourselves to react until we've prayed it through with God. We've let him challenge us about our own reaction. Last week I was uh, in my prayer hut in the woods when my daughter and her family went past a nearby path and Jessamy asked Zora, who's four, Bappy is talking to God. What do you think he's saying? Zora replied, I think God is saying, yes, Bappy, that's very true. <laughs> um, well, that was very flattering. Um, when I heard about it, I had to say, actually, he's much more likely to be saying, no, Peter, that's not right at all. Because my journal is full of me ranting away about things, arguing with God about issues that have really got to me. Look, it's not fair. I only, and he, and God saying, yes, Peter, I know all that. They haven't behaved well, but we are in the forgiveness business, remember? Well, yes, but they need to learn, and I'm going to teach them, Peter... Will you trust me to deal with it? Yes. No. Well, it's not right. I'm... Peter, look what they did to me. Oh. All right, I suppose. But... Matter, matter. For most of us, when we get it wrong and go off on one in a rant, it takes some time before we check ourselves and repent and say sorry to God. But as we keep working on this, we'll find that the next time, our repentance comes a little bit earlier. Instead of several days later, it becomes the next day. And then instead of next day, it becomes that afternoon. And then we manage to repent earlier still. And then we have so trained ourselves in God's righteousness that we find ourselves repenting almost immediately after we've got it wrong. And then the wonderful next step, I'm told... <laughs> is that we begin to repent just before the rant begins. And that process is true of every sin, of lust, of fear, of pride, of envy, of greed. The little stimulus comes, and we recognize it, and I'm just about to go off and catch it and say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm colluding with the enemy on that. And the wonderful thing is it really works. As we work at it with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, it really does work. And you catch yourself and you think, thank you, Lord. That word translated anger in verse 20 means more than getting cross. It translates as our whole natural disposition and character. So literally, it's man's natural disposition does not accomplish God's righteousness. We can't establish what God wants for our families and our church and our society and our world by just doing what comes naturally. We need what comes supernaturally from his grace at work in our lives. So we need to get into and stay in spiritual training. And that means having zero tolerance of sin and selfishness and pride and envy and anger and self-pity and lust in our lives. And of course, yes, we will fall down in some areas. But what matters is how we get up again, how we live after making a mistake. It takes time, but the more we seek to root out 
Every reaction we have that is not Christ in us, the better we'll get at it. So we have to stop making excuses for ourselves. Now, as an ex-lawyer, I am one thing I'm really, really good at is making excuses for myself, as my wife will tell you to her cost. Um, I can persuade myself, and sometimes her, and almost everybody else, that what I was doing was entirely reasonable and right. I cannot always persuade, I can ever persuade God that he will put the, shine the spotlight on it. So I have to, I'm having to learn not to make excuses for myself, but trust God that as we seek to work with him, humbly accepting the word planted in us, so he will change us from the inside out. And that's why we read our Bibles and pray. It's why we come to church, to listen to sermons like this. So we have a mirror held up to our souls as we look at Jesus and let his spirit show us the contrast between him and us. I had a friend who turned up at a very smart dinner party, all dressed up in his suit and everything, his collar buttoned up, but no tie. So I asked him if this was some new fashion, and he replied, Oh, oh, I checked myself in the mirror as I came out too. Well, it hadn't done him much good, had it? And if all that's happening when we come to church is just connecting up with some sort of vague spiritual value, which makes us feel better about ourselves, well then our religion is worse than useless. Verse 26, it's worthless. Because religion in itself isn't necessarily a good thing. It can be positively dangerous. It can cause complacency and smugness and self-righteousness and bigotry and wars and persecution and cruelty. There's been far too much of that down through history, hasn't there? If the practice of religion doesn't issue in an unselfish love for other people, a willingness to put yourself out for them, then whatever else it may be, it isn't Christianity. Because Christianity is the faith of the one who gave himself up for all of us, even to that agonizing death on the cross, so as to pay for all our sins. He didn't look at us and say, oh, what nice deserving people, they've got a few things wrong, I'm prepared to die for them because they're so good. He looked at us and said, what a mess. And they're going to murder me. And I'm still going to come and die for them. It wasn't a question of our just deserts. It was a question of absolute self-giving. That's the spirit of the one, the living word, who lives inside his followers. The word planted in you, which can save you. And if all you're doing is hearing about him, but not doing anything to live him out in all your reactions, well, quite frankly, says James, verse 22, you're deceiving yourself. So there's a little checklist he gives us for us to follow. One, am I careful about what I say so as not to hurt people? Verse 26, do I keep a tight rein on my tongue? Two, do I try to do what I can to assist those who are most at need in society, looking after widow, orphans and widows in their distress, or the equivalent, verse 27? Three, do I try my best to keep myself from being polluted by the world, seeing where the world's way of looking at things and its values are contrary to the beauty and purity and holiness of Jesus, repenting of the way I've allowed them to influence my thoughts and actions, not saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I tell a little white lie on that form. I mean, everybody's doing it, that sort of thing. If Jesus is living in us, we are to be whiter than white, pure and faultless, verse 27. 
How are we ever to achieve that? Never think that Christianity is about keeping a lot of rules. This is the law that gives freedom. It's a heart change God is looking for, not a dutiful performance. A change inside us that results in different actions and attitudes. And we won't completely achieve purity and faultlessness perfectly in this life, but we can make a jolly good start. Begin, verse 25, by looking intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Reading your Bible and asking all the time, what does this tell me about the character of God? What does it tell me about humanity at large? What does it tell me about myself? And then, what do you want me to do about it? And then, doing it. Whatever it is you feel that God might be prompting you to do. Not forgetting what you've heard, but doing it. And that person, says verse 25, will be blessed in what he or she does. So, James has taught us the secret of how to hear God. If you don't feel very confident about hearing God's voice, the answer is, ask him to show you anything that's less than Jesus in you. Humbly turn away from it and tell God that you are sorry. Accept his forgiveness, one for you on the cross. And then invite him to show you through his word and through your fellow Christians what he wants you to understand. Try to understand your Bible. Chop down any impressions that are coming into your mind, however peculiar they may seem to be. It's often the things that strike you as really peculiar when you're reading the Bible. You think, what? Well, jot it down anyway, because it's often that, as you work at it, that will be where God really speaks to you. And then ask God to help you to make sense of the notes you've made. Check that nothing has occurred to you that could actually be contrary to the Bible, because if it is, you can't have heard clearly. Ask wise Christian friends to check whether they think you've got it right, and then do it. Put it into practice, whatever it is. Don't let anything put you off. And the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Now, the classic evangelical sermon is a three-point sermon. Here is our eight practical, ste- eight step practical lessons in everyday Christianity, but they're quick fire. So, one, be quick to listen, slow to speak. No, that's all one. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Two, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Three, humbly accept the word planted in you. Four, don't merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Five, look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Six, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Seven, look after those most in need. Eight, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And if you continue to do this, not forgetting what you've heard, but doing it, you will be blessed in everything you do for him. Sounds good, doesn't it? You'll fail. But he has died to pray for that, to put you right, to give you a fresh start again and again and again and again by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the perfect standards that you have. And we thank you for showing us our inability to live to them But Lord, thank you that that makes us appreciate all the more the wonder of your salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for our sin on the cross. Thank you for breaking through death and rising again to give us a new life in Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come to dwell in us, to renew us day by day, to equip us for 
heaven with you, Father in heaven. Amen.